Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. Today, we welcome our guest, Davina Kyle, a Pillsbury corporate partner. Davina provides guidance to clients across numerous industries, including financial services, technology, and retail. She provides advice on securities, corporate finance, and general corporate matters. Davina's clients include underwriters, issuers, and public and private companies in a wide range of securities transactions, as well as sellers and acquirers in M&A transactions. And if that isn't enough, Davina also has extensive experience advising on stock exchange governance initiatives, corporate governance, reporting and proxy matters, and securities law compliance. Thanks for being here, Davina. Hi, Joel, and uh, no problem. Thanks so much for having me here. Let's jump right in. Your securities transaction experience runs the gamut from IPOs to follow-on equity offerings, pipes, and debt. But today, we're going to focus on a transaction category that has taken the market by storm, SPACs. Can you tell us what a SPAC is and why it's all the rage right now? Uh, yeah, no problem. Um, so in its simplest terms, a SPAC, um, by its acronym, is a Special Purpose Acquisition Company, or as we tend to call it these days, a Special Purpose IPO Company. Um, but it is, in essence, a shell company, so it's an entity that's formed to raise capital in an IPO, and the purpose is to use the proceeds from the IPO to acquire one or more unspecified businesses or assets that will be identified after the public offering. And, and the shell company is usually formed by a group of sponsors and investors, typically with a very strong reputation, experience, and success in identifying and acquiring and operating a business. It used to be the case that they were often focused on a specific business sector, for example, clean energy or hospitality, et cetera. But these days, more and more, you're seeing SPACs being formed without necessarily being focused on a specific industry sector. Um, so after the IPO, uh, the proceeds from the IPO are put into a trust account, and those funds cannot be released until the closing of a business combination or what we call a DSPAC transaction. Or if they don't close a business deal, they have to unwind the SPAC and give the cash back to the public stockholders. So from a timing perspective, uh, SPACs usually have up to two years to complete a business combination. Otherwise, they have to return the funds. And the other unusual aspect about a SPAC is that the public SPAC investors, whether or not, typically whether or not they vote in favor of a business combination, can still opt to redeem their stock and get cash back when the deal closes. So think about a SPAC in really in terms of three phases. There's the SPAC formation going public, and then there's this period of time where the SPAC is a public company and looking for a target. And then the third phase where they actually identify a target and then they negotiate the merger and merge the companies together and the private target essentially steps into the shoes of the SPAC and becomes the public company on a going forward basis. Um, and in terms of why it's all the rage, it's sort of interesting. Um, there's a lot of reasons. I think one of the main reasons is there have been a lot of SPACs around for a couple of years. They're coming up on their deadlines to use their funds or give the money back. And also, um, 
there's a lot of companies that are looking for access to the public capital markets now. And because of market volatility and economic conditions, a traditional IPO window may not be open or the company might not be a suitable traditional IPO candidate. So the SPAC vehicle is now becoming increasingly attractive as offering them an alternative to access the public markets. That's really interesting, Davina, because I worked on a SPAC many years ago, and what I remember most about it was that it wasn't thought to have much of a future (laughs) due to its speculative nature and disclosure risk, or should I say, risk of lack of disclosure. What's different this time around? Yeah, it is interesting. And I do remember back in the day, we would see a lot of SPAC IPOs, and frankly, we sort of dismissed them because SPACs definitely used to be viewed more as an alternative of last resort for companies that wanted to go public, but now they're definitely being viewed as at least a viable, realistic alternative to an IPO. And for lack of a better term, there's sort of less of a stigma attached to them. And as I noted, there's several reasons for it. One of them is what I mentioned, sort of right place, right time, SPACs needing to find targets, coming up against deadlines, and companies increasingly need or want to access the public capital markets. But a couple other reasons why, you know, SPACs are no longer a sort of negative four-letter word is you've definitely seen a lot more high-profile and successful SPAC transactions, and definitely those high-profile deals peak investor interest and add to the the legitimacy of a SPAC deal. And also adding to the legitimacy of SPAC deals is you see SPACs transactions, I just use the term kind of moving up market. And by up market, I mean, you're starting to see the bulge bracket, uh, high profile investment banks, and very experienced, well-known, well-regarded sponsors and founders becoming involved in SPAC transactions Whereas historically, you might have seen, you know, not so much the bulge bracket firms leading SPAC IPOs. Also, there's a lot of market volatility. And as I noted, the IPO window is a little bit hazy for companies. And so the SPAC offers a good alternative. Another thought is that companies and the industry has always been looking for an alternative to the traditional IPO. So we've seen the rise of direct listings and now you're seeing SPAC deals People just sometimes view the IPO process as a bit burdensome and expensive. And the other issue and sort of relates to my last point, ironically, is I actually personally view it as a misconception. But for some private target companies looking to go public, for some reason, tend to view the SPAC process as being faster and cheaper than a traditional IPO process. And just from personal experience, I actually counsel companies that while that can sometimes be the case, it is often not the case. So even though that might be helping to fuel the SPAC trend, I don't necessarily know that that's actually a a true underlying reason when you actually unwind these SPAC deals and look at how much time it takes and how much the cost is for the target company. So in addition to time and expense factors, if a company is comparing the IPO route, uh, the more traditional IPO route, that is versus a SPAC IPO route. What are, what are some other factors that, that a company should be looking at in deciding between the two options? I'm sure. The, I think the first and foremost is looking at the profile of the target company itself and specifically whether it is a viable traditional IPO candidate. Because if it is, in many cases, the traditional IPO route might actually work better for it 
but there are obviously very um, great companies with a lot of potential, but they might just be in what I'll characterize as an emerging industry or a non-traditional industry. And for that reason, the traditional IPO market and traditional IPO investors may be less familiar and less comfortable with a company in that sector or with that profile. And so for that company, maybe the traditional IPO route isn't the best alternative. And then they would look towards a SPAC alternative or other alternatives. The other factors are, you know, again, market volatility and IPO window. So if there's tremendous market volatility or the IPO window is definitely closed and a company feels that this is the time and they really need to get out and access public markets, then they would definitely want to consider a SPAC alternative. A third reason, and this is probably, I would say, one of the more uh, more important reasons, is valuation certainty. So, again, for companies which I will say, you know, are up and to the right on the scale, traditional IPO candidates, a traditional IPO option probably works best for them because there will be high demand for their stock and they will price the deal very well and will very likely trade up after the IPO. But for many other companies, that valuation uncertainty and waiting to see how the roadshow works out, et cetera, is a bit of an obstacle for them. So going IPO through a SPAC route is a little bit better in that it provides them more valuation certainty because they will have negotiated the price with the SPAC. They're not sort of waiting for the book building process and an IPO roadshow to determine the price of their stock. Another factor, which I think companies don't always focus on, but from a, as a lawyer, I, I always have to flag for them, is, is the company public company ready? So again, whether you go IPO through the SPAC or you go IPO through a traditional route, that private target company has to be ready to be a public company on day one of closing of the business combination or day one of closing the IPO. And getting IPO ready or public company ready is a very time-intensive process requires a lot of work in the background, and a lot of companies take a year or two to get fully ready. So even though a SPAC process, if it, if it is even faster, and again, it often isn't, but even if it is quote-unquote faster than an IPO, the target company might not be ready to be IPO in that time frame, so they have to factor that in. And again, I just want to reiterate the time and cost factor um, as between the two alternatives, I don't think is as disparate as a lot of people might otherwise think. Thanks for that, Davina. Um, perhaps you could close us out with a brief mention of any particular obstacles to pursuing a SPAC strategy. I'm sure, happy to. Um, obviously, some of this will touch a little bit on what I mentioned in terms of uh, time and cost and IPO, public company readiness. But in terms of obstacles, and again, speaking from a lawyer perspective, advising companies that are considering a SPAC process is you should really look at a SPAC as three deals at once. And by that, I mean, you're doing a merger into a public entity. In almost all cases, you are also doing a capital raise and through what we call a pipe financing, which is a private equity and public securities at the same time, and that is to ensure there's enough cash at the closing of the business combination for the company to continue to operate. Because remember, in a regular IPO, the company's actually raising cash proceeds in the traditional IPO. In a SPAC group, they're merging into a public company and becoming public. But unless they do an additional financing, they're not actually raising capital. So if they need capital, they'll need to do that. So that's the second of the three deals. 
And the third deal, the third part of the deal is you actually are doing an IPO. You're just doing it in a different way. And that, again, dovetails into what I mentioned about really needing to be ready to be a public company and doing all the work you would do in an IPO. It just overlaps or in a slightly different construct when you're doing it through a SPAC. So it's three deals at one time from from my perspective. And as a result, um, can be very expensive and time consuming. And in some cases can actually be longer than an IPO, but on occasion can be less, um, less time than an IPO. Uh, they should also consider deal uncertainty. And again, there's deal uncertainty with a traditional IPO and a SPAC. It's just a different kind of uncertainty. So for an IPO, it is going on the roadshow and having a successful roadshow. Then the SPAC process, it's uncertainty around closing. So if you need a shareholder vote and the SPAC shareholders vote it down, or if an excessive number of SPAC public shareholders elect to redeem their shares for cash, you're scrambling to make sure there's enough cash in the till for the company on a post-business combination basis. Also, with a SPAC merger, unlike a regular merger, the target has much more limited recourse in case the deal falls through. So there's usually no reverse breakup fee, for example. So if they're negotiating a merger with a SPAC, they're spending a lot of money and the deal breaks, the target is a little bit left holding the bag and has spent a lot of outlay of cash, et cetera, and not much recourse uh, to recoup those losses. Depending on the deal structure, again, remember the SPAC has shareholders the founders usually have a significant percentage and have structured the deal so that they'll maintain a significant percentage in the business combination. So you'll have to negotiate around the potential dilution of the sponsor's shares and their sponsor's percentage ownership in the company post DSPAC transaction. And again, you know, same amount of work as an IPO from a target company perspective. They just have to do a lot of work to get ready. So while the SPAC route definitely is a great alternative for a lot of companies, I always caution them by saying, you know, you're still doing the same amount of work. It's still the same disclosures. So definitely take a step back and think about, you know, your suitability as a traditional IPO target, how ready you are, if you're ready to cope with potential deals, uncertainties of a certain type. and don't be so focused on thinking it's this uh, quick, cheap way to go IPO because it isn't necessarily the case. Having said that, again, companies that can't go or aren't suitable candidates, I will also say the SPAC route is definitely a, a very good and viable alternative. Davina, you've really shed some light on a previously mysterious securities product. Thank you so much for that. It's been great chatting with you today. Uh, no problem. My pleasure. And again, thanks so much for having me on. And now it's time for This Week in History. October 15, 1993, marks an extraordinary moment in history when two men who live totally different lives with totally different perspectives in a bitterly polarized nation were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Nelson Mandela and then South African President F.W. de Klerk, one a former prisoner and the other his jailer, somehow worked together to bring an end to apartheid and set the stage for a better future for South Africa. That moment in 1993 shows us that deep divisions in a society can indeed be overcome through determination and compromise. And I hope certain world leaders are paying attention to this. On a lighter note, just because I think we all need something to laugh about, 
I have to give honorable mention to Iran's attempt on October 17, 2008, to create a 1,500-meter sandwich, which would have set the record as the largest sandwich ever made. But sadly, it was not to be, as crowds of spectators ate it before it could be measured. Until next time, thanks for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.